Hey guys, welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's Liz Kelly, the co-host of Tea Time. Your favorite celebrity and pop culture podcasts have moved out of Channel 33 and into their very own feed called Ringer Dish. On Ringer Dish, you can still listen to Jam Session on Wednesdays and Tea Time on Fridays, and we'll be launching a brand new show that'll publish every Monday. Episodes so far have included a heated debate on which celebrity Chris reigns supreme and a social media deep dive on the Big Little Lies cast. So to hear more about the royal family and our current celebrity obsessions, subscribe to Ringer Dish on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. It is good to be back in Los Angeles with good old Isaac Lee. My guest today is Preet Bharara. We actually recorded this in New York. If you haven't heard of Preet before, I'll try to run through his biography really quickly, but you should look into him because he's an inspiring figure and uh, he's gotten a lot of recognition for being the former Southern District Attorney of New York. And a lot of his sort of legal analysis after he's left office, you can see him on CNN and he's got a great social media following on Twitter and he has a fantastic podcast. So check him out on all of his sort of media. Uh, He was born in Punjab, India to a Sikh father and a Muslim mother who immigrated to the States when he was an infant. He grew up in New Jersey. He loves Bruce Springsteen. He's a Harvard and Columbia Law School graduate. He has a very storied legal career and, again, eventually becoming the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and uh, took down a lot of big cases when he was in office, a lot of high-profile insider trading cases to trial and institutions that were responsible for the 2008 financial meltdown and implementing a lot of new strategies to do so. He went after both Republicans and Democrats, and he was successful very successful in doing so. He was on the cover of Time Magazine in 2012 with the headline, This Man is Busting Wall Street. When Donald Trump took office, and I think what happened was he made all U.S. attorneys or a specific amount of U.S. attorneys to resign. Preet chose to stay on. And in 2017, after refusing to step down when Jeff Sessions asked all 46 U.S. attorneys to resign, he was fired. I think regardless of your politics, you got to respect this guy. He believed that his office should be nonpartisan, and he stuck by his guns even though it cost him his job. And he will always say that was the best job he's ever had. I very much admire his principles, his work ethic, his intelligence, and how he sort of understands the world at large today. And most importantly, he wrote this book called Doing Justice. I found it to be incredibly revealing about the process of doing good work. And I think that justice is synonymous with excellence and taking pride in your job. And I sent an email to a lot of my uh, managers thinking, I didn't know that justice had so much to do with hospitality. And if you read this book, which I highly encourage you guys to do because it might seem as a stretch, right? I I think we've made a lot of crazy parallels over the past year doing this podcast with analytics and baseball, football, basketball, art, 
this seems like another huge stretch of the pursuit of justice and being great at your job in the hospitality industry. And I think that you'll find that there's a lot of parallels, but you don't have to be a lawyer or a cook or even interested in politics to learn from him. I'm very lucky to have this podcast and I learn a lot about the world that I live in and listening to Preet on his podcast has greatly informed me and again, highly encourage you guys to do the same. The podcast is called Stay Tuned. And the book, again, is called Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. Seriously, I recommend this to everyone I know in the, in the restaurant industry. It's a good book to have a better understanding of what it takes to be great at your job, to sort of challenge your default settings, to be open to things. And I think most importantly, it reminded me of something that Juan Maria Arzac the great chef of San Sebastian always says to look at life and to think about food with a child's eye. And if you read this book, you'll, you'll have a better understanding of what that comparison might be. And again, just how he talks about many of the people that he's worked with when he was doing sort of public service and the individuals, whether they were prosecutors or detectives or just good old police officers doing investigative work, there is a common thread of doing your job, doing it well, and being honest about your shortcomings. And I, I won't go on and on and on. I don't want to regurgitate the book, but it definitely moved me. And I I'm very lucky that Preet was on this podcast. So I'll shut the fuck up. Here is my conversation with Preet Prahar. Welcome, Preet. We are at Momofuku Kawi in Hudson Yards. My first time. Thanks for having me. It's a little bit of a traffic nightmare to get here. It was. <laughs> so thanks but for I'm, making I'm it But I have an appetite now. <laughs> and uh, we'll eat after. We'll eat after. But um, I, I got to know you over the past couple of years. We, we met a few times. So thank you for coming on to this podcast. Um, so I, I was telling everyone, I'm getting preed on this podcast. And everyone's like, how? <laughs> you're, like a, you're like a folk hero to me. No, I'm not. No, truthfully. And, when I tell well, people nice who of, you are, they're like, nice, what? It's nice of, of all the guests, this is the one where most people are like, you better not fuck this up. <laughs> well, now, now I feel a lot of pressure. Now I feel a lot of pressure. I wanted you on because I read your book. Thanks for And the reading. title is yeah. Doing Justice. It is. And you won't believe this. I have recommended it to many of my managers. Good. I think that it's, I oh, hope. Is there a lot of stealing going on? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> Stealing of ideas? No, but it's more about the process of how you... I, I had no idea. I was just... Because I know you and a uh, big fan of everything in your, your podcast and your live show was hilarious. I wanted to just read it. And then the more I, I was looking into it, obviously there's some things that are not applicable, like you know uh, the justice part or like the, the sentencing and just right. being a, an attorney. I thought the process of how you approach it is the exact same as being a chef. So, so I'm glad you're mentioning this and it's a, it's a delight to come on your podcast. I'm a big fan of yours and your restaurants and not just that, but how thoughtful you are about the relationship between culture and politics and society and all, all, all of those things that are interwoven. And so it's a joy and delight to be on the show. But the book was not intended to be for lawyers, really. I mean, I think lawyers will get something out of it and prosecutors will get something out of it, maybe judges too. But it's about how to approach problems and how to think about issues and how to deal with quandaries, um, how to ask questions, There's a whole chapter on how to ask questions, which I presume that 
you want your managers to do to try to figure out the best way to conduct the business. And so in many ways, it's a book for anybody, whether you you teach, whether you cook, whether you're a, you know part of a police force, or you're just a parent trying to figure out how to deal with your family. And that's exactly how I, I took it. It was, this is applicable for literally any profession, walk of life, if you want to have a better understanding of how to view the world to make judgments. Ultimately, I think that's an extension of doing justice, right? You have to make decisions and make the best decisions possible to like make a logical outcome. Yeah. And not only for people who are at the top, but also for people who are at any level in the organization. And so, you know, I don't know if this resonated with you. You know, I talk about how important it is to be comfortable, even if you feel like you're going to show your ignorance to ask questions. And when I was very junior at the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I was a prosecutor, you know, people are really scared to ask questions because they're very well credentialed and you don't want to look stupid in front of your colleagues. Like, how do you, how do you do this? How do you argue bail? Like, and, and that I'm sure happens everywhere. It happens in businesses. It happens in all sorts of businesses, including the restaurant business. But then you think, well, now you become the U.S. Attorney. You become the Dave Chang of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Like you're the head guy. I don't mean to speak for you, but then there were lots of times still that I didn't know the details of things and I had to rely on other people. And that's kind of scary. How do you know how to do your job as the leader, the supervisor overall of the, of the institution if you're not in the weeds because you know lots of people are doing lots of different things. They have lots of different portfolios and you have to learn how to ask questions. And sometimes even when you come back as a seasoned person who's the leader of the organization, you can't be afraid of asking your dumb questions. And usually if you have decent judgment and you're asking in good faith, those questions aren't dumb at all. And from what I gathered from reading the book, it would almost seem that if you stop asking questions, if you stop trying to be aware of your actions and improving, you don't get better, but that's how you make mistakes and costly mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Cause sometimes it's the case that people do things. I mean, one of the things I admire about you is innovation. I talk about innovation in the book, which you wouldn't think, I don't know, why do prosecutors care about innovation? Because threats change and tools change. And I give a, a bunch of examples. Um, one is another culinary one, which I thought has nothing to do with crime and punishment or law enforcement. But you know, people think that to innovate, you have to have a degree from MIT where you have to invent the post-it or something. And there are little simple innovations that can happen all the time. You know, somebody can decide we're not going to you know, have tipping anymore. Someone can decide... We're going to do, you know, all sorts of things that you would know better about. And the example I gave, which is a very sort of well-known one, is, you know, for years and years and years, you couldn't get ketchup out of a bottle. It was very difficult because the viscosity of the ketchup sitting in the Heinz bottle, glass bottle, you remember this when you were kids, you're trying to get the ketchup out of the bottle and you'd have to use a, a knife or something else to get the ketchup out. And then if you finally got it out, it would overshoot the burger. This was a flaw of the ketchup dispensal process. I think. It's literally a bottleneck. It's literally a bottleneck. Maybe Is that where it comes from? I don't, I don't know, know, but I, I just be. It's a Heinz sauce. And, and, and do you remember this? I remember when I was thinking about that issue to try to you know, use a real life plain example of how a simple idea can be a little bit radical, even if it's just a ketchup bottle. Remember, Heinz used to have a series of commercials in the 70s. So they had this crappy you know, issue with the ketchup not coming out and they made it into a virtue by saying, remember their slogan was, anticipation is making me wait. And they said, think how good it, and you'd see the ketchup sort of dripping slowly onto a burger or something. And the announcer would say, think how good it's going to taste when it finally gets there. What the hell is that? Like, imagine if you were a travel company, you're, you're an airline, say Garuba, imagine how great it's going to be when you finally get there. When you use that analogy, like, I'm not, I'm not joking. I really, 
really love this book because it caused me to go down my own rabbit holes and use the ketchup example. And why don't they put the, the lid the, on the, the bottom? On the bottom. So that's the innovation. If somebody decided you didn't have to be a Rhodes Scholar or an MIT scientist or a physicist, I don't know who it was. Some man or woman was like, why don't we just take advantage of I'm pretty sure gravity was known back in the, I think it was, in the 70s. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. the lid on the bottom. But it seemed to me like, and I, I extrapolated a little bit more because I'm a crazy person. And I was like, <laughs> Trying to understand even how that further relates to your job as trying to be a, an attorney seeking justice. It's like your job is a lot of different things. One of just is sorting out facts and then making an assessment that's independent of anyone else. Yes. And then I was thinking about just marketing in general. It's like if you don't question how a bottle of ketchup is poured, you're always going to do it the same way like everyone else. Yeah. And how would you ever know to question it if that's what you're always told to do? And it's just promoting the status quo. And how many things in our lives are the same way until someone, as you say, just sort of like common sense, like, wait, why are we doing it this way? Yeah. And you again, it's a small example. And I was trying to pick a sort of mundane example. And then, you know, shampoo bottles have, have copied that. To show that anybody at any job, at any level, can have a good idea and say, well, why do we have to do it this way? And I, and I say, and this is a common, I think, refrain among people who have to be leaders, when I would ask the question, say, well, why do we do it this way? And if someone ever said, because we've always done it this way, that was the one time I would get mad. Because that's not how you foster change. That's not how you do a better job for whatever public you're serving, whether it's serving nice meals to someone or it's trying to deliver justice to a community. It happens all the time. You know, the other example, I'll give you a more you know, direct example from my work. People know what insider trading is, lay people, and people know what a wiretap is. And to get a wiretap, you have to go to a judge and you have to ask permission. You have to be careful to give some evidence that there's a crime that the statute allows you to use a wiretap for. Securities fraud has been a type of crime that has always, from the beginning, I think, been a basis for getting a wiretap. And yet no one, to my knowledge, ever thought to use a wiretap to go after insider trading. I don't know why. And it wasn't my idea. One of my predecessors came up with the idea, and then we furthered it and did more of those cases. When it's one of the few crimes that's literally one of the elements of the crime is communication. It's some, you know, guy A gives a tip about a company, about a merger or something else to guy B. And it's that transmission of information that sometimes happens on the phone that is an essential part of the crime. That's an obvious candidate for wiretapping, except no one had done it before. Because usually wiretaps were reserved for racketeering and certain other kinds of cases, narcotics cases and narcotics conspiracies. Somebody came up with the idea. It was a simple one. It didn't require a master's degree in anything. And that's the kind of environment I think no matter what the environment is, a school you know, restaurant business, a doctor's office, even a prosecutor's office, you got to have that spirit in the place. And you talk about culture a lot in this book, but if I use that example of someone questioning something and having an idea, whether it's wiretapping, right? I, again, I don't know what your predecessors must have been like, but could you imagine a, a time or a scenario where some junior analyst or lawyer was like, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we wiretap this? And yeah. then someone higher up was like, no, that's stupid. Well, so it's important for, let's brag on ourselves for a second. <laughs> it's not enough for, you know, to have a couple of people who are innovative and want to like turn, as I described in the ketchup case, orthodoxy on its head. You got to have management that's receptive to that too and cares about it. So it's both things. And also it doesn't solve the trick if the leader at the top is always talking about innovation, but everyone else is sort of just punching a time card and coming in from you know ten to four, and they don't really care, and they're getting paid the same whether they do, they do the work quickly or not, whether they do the work 
efficiently or not, whether they do the work creatively or not, which you worry about sometimes in government offices. My office was not like that. And I think it was never like that. I hope I shook it up even more. But yeah, culture, a culture of innovation is incredibly important. And you know, lawyers are very conservative by nature. They're not business people. And even the language of creativity and innovation was a little weird to use in my office. I, I tell the story how I went to a Silicon Valley company that helped to do sort of data analysis. And we were one of the first, the first U.S. attorney's office to enter into an, a, par a partnership with them, a contract with them for them to help us in a very innovative and you know, forward-leaning way, an aggressive way, deal with the you know, terabytes of data that you have now in the world. And I went to speak at a conference there, and I'm like this staid, you know, United States attorney, always in a suit and tie, and it's a bunch of people in Silicon Valley, in Palo Alto, and they're all wearing shorts and T-shirts. And I tried to explain to them how sort of slow government entities are to change, whether you're talking about the Department of Defense or you're talking about the Department of State or the Department of Justice, it doesn't matter. And you have to get around that. And I told the story that there's a word processing program that up until very, very recently was the only word processing program that was used by the United States Justice Department. And it's called Word Perfect. And they all started, they all started laughing. I'm like, yeah, we were still using Word Perfect. I got a Twitter account. I was the first U.S. attorney to have a Twitter account, which was very, you know, somber, not like I wasn't popping off like I do now sometimes on Twitter. And people looked at me like I had three heads. I said, look, it is a now a mainstream way for organizations to communicate with the public in an appropriate way. And I said, well, I don't know. It seems like too forward-leaning to us. And I'm like, you realize that the Pope has a Twitter account. The Pope, who's a pretty conservative institution, <laughs> the Catholic Church. And yet lawyers in my office thought it was maybe you know a bridge too far to do a simple thing like start a Twitter account. You can't have that mindset. Or it's going to be too late and you're going to be like, oh, we should have, could have, would have. Yeah, you fall behind. I mean, obviously a publicly funded U.S. attorney's office doesn't go out of business in the same way that a tech company might, but you know it loses some luster. It loses its reputation. And my office has been around since the founding of the Republic, and, and you don't want that to happen. In the culture chapter that you talk about, the thing that made a big impression on me was a business booker. I read a lot of business books when I took over the office. I figured I know the law, and I know how the office works, and I understand how the courts work. Maybe what I need to understand a little bit more is how to manage people and build their morale and motivate them. And so I read a book called How the Mighty Fall, in which a, a very simple but important concept sat with me and still sits with me now. And that is, how do you think about an institution? There are two things that are important, continuity and also change. We've been talking about change because new threats develop, people change their tastes, and all sorts of things change no matter what institution it is, whether it's a restaurant, a tech company, or a U.S. attorney's office. But continuity is important too. You don't just throw out the values of the place. So for purposes of, of my institution that I write about in the book, uh, you want continuity of integrity, you want continuity of excellence, you want continuity of independence, which is an important thing in the world now as we, as we look at the Justice Department. But then in other areas, you have to decide, well, you know what? The mafia is not as big of a threat to New York as it was 20 years ago, but you know what is? Cybercrime. So you got to let, let go a little bit of some of the folks who are focusing on the mob and increase the kind of things you're doing with cyber. And a lot of institutions, they just keep doing it the same way, the same way, the same way. They don't, they don't change their personal. But you know why? Because it causes people to be upset. People don't like change. And lawyers in particular really don't like change. And there's a group of people that probably dislike change more than lawyers, and that's the culinary community. Is that right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I always use this as an I'll example. For many years, the at least the American culinary community was allergic to the shift from pounds and ounces 
to a metric system of grams. <laughs> it's yeah. just like insane to me. Like that was seen as too much. Right. Well, you want something that's more exact and perfect. It's the metric system. Yeah. Yet still people won't use it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, an American culinary problem. I think it's mostly American. I remember being in grade school, and you must have felt the same. When I was in like fourth grade, the teachers would try to teach us the metric system and said, you know, by the time you're in college, we're all going to be using the metric system. I'm now 30 years past college. <laughs> and I, think, I don't think that we're there. I mean, part of that is just how we've always done it before. But it's not any of that. It's anything that's a technological innovation in cooking. Anything that's new from gas stoves that transition from coal stoves and now you have electric stoves or new ingredients and science in general, basically science. Like I'll, I'll never get having an argument with a chef being like, I don't need to learn anything new. I have fire, I have chicken. <laughs> I have fire and I have chicken. That's a very good, that's a very good. Well, it's true. You can definitely make delicious food, but. <laughs> I have, look, it's, it's pretty compelling logic, but then you only have the one thing. And but some people are cool with stuff, that, I guess. I guess. I wrote this line down from your book because it was something that I think about a lot, but you articulated it in such a way that is very powerful to me. There are people that fight for the status quo and reject change. And yeah. I almost view basically any cook that comes into my restaurant as that's their default setting. Yeah. And how do you change that? It's so hard. I don't have an answer because everyone needs to be spoken to differently. Yeah. I mean, I guess it may be the case. Maybe a bit of good news is that as we're having this conversation, let's say you have an organization of 500 people. You know, my initial premise was always, well, everyone should be open to change and be thinking about innovating and coming up with a new idea. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. But you know, maybe it's maybe it's better if we, you know, we start preparing the kitchen 30 minutes earlier, maybe 30 minutes later. Or maybe we stop offering, you know, this dessert option for what I don't even know what those examples would be. But maybe it's the case you don't need all 500 to be like that. In the same way, on you know, a sports team, everyone needs to be above a certain threshold of excellent. But you don't need everyone to be it. I mean, that's the all-stars, right? You don't need everyone to be. Uh, Dave Chang, because you have Dave Chang, and you need a few other people who are sort of in your image, and are, I think who are proxies for you, and then the things that they're doing underneath your vast expanding empire, they channel you know your vision, or offer their own vision that you then oversee, and they're prone to innovation, and then other you know like not not everyone is going to be a leader. You want to have more leaders in your organization. I think the average organization, a lot of people are followers, and this idea of not being open to innovation is a little bit of a feature of followership. If you are a follower in your group in the Justice Department, and you definitely had sort of lawyers and detectives and such that had to be, can you still be effective at your job? Like, don't you yeah. need to look at it at a different so angle? I've never, so this is, this is why it's great coming on your podcast, because you're coming at this in ways that I haven't thought about. Not every aspect of being a prosecutor requires you to be innovative. There's a lot of aspects of the job. You just have to be very, very good. It's like, you know, I, I assume that there's certain kinds of foods that require you to, to think, you know, creatively about how you're combining ingredients that have never been combined before, never been combined well before. But there's other stuff like making a good pizza um, or, you know, making, good, making a good omelet, right? That you can do it creatively, but there are some people who are not good at it. And craft is incredibly important. I think, for example, and some lawyers who are listening may disagree with me, but just off the top of my head, I had prosecutors who were very, very good at trial. Once the case was made and once the indictment was brought, and they had to stand in front of a jury and argue to the court and to the jury about the guilt of the defendant. Incredibly well-versed in the facts, incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, incredibly charming, 
uh, good style with the jury, all, you know, very credible. And they would crush the opening statement. They would crush the summation because they knew the facts and they were deeply, deeply professional. Now, some people who were very good at being the trial lawyer were not very good at building the investigation. Investigations sometimes take more creativity. So, you know, a crime has been committed, a house has burned down, and you're wondering, was it arson or was it not? Well, maybe it was. And there's some evidence of it. Doing an investigation is less cookie cutter. And I had some people who could, at the end of the day, you know, some investigators were able to show that Dave Chang, I'm going to use you as an example, <clears throat> that Dave Chang burned down the house. And once they had all the facts and they were accumulated, they could try the case in, in front of a jury. But you need sometimes people who are innovative in the investigation. Think, you know, is there some other way we can figure out where the kerosene was purchased? Is there some other interesting tool we can use to find out why the house burned the way it did? And that's not a great analogy because it doesn't sound so creative. But there are some people who can be who need to be very creative because they're the ones who connect the dots in a way that's perfection. And some other folks that just have sort of good craft and good skill. Are these people, because they're, again, in my mind, that you're just basically talking about the kitchen that's right outside <laughs> right now, right? It's a collection of people that are good at some things and bad at others. Yeah, not everyone can be good at everything. Those are, by the way, I'm just, the thing I found was there are some people, you're one of them, I think, who are really good at lots of the different jobs in an organization. I mean, think about sports. You know, people would say, well, everyone in your office is, a, is an incredibly accomplished lawyer. And, you know, we had the benefit of getting people with the best resumes. They went to the best law schools. It's very, very hard to get into the Southern District of New York. I mean, it's the hardest law job, I think, to get in the country. And you say, well, just because you can do that, you must be great at summations. You must be great at investigating. You must be great at doing appeals. You must be great at writing briefs. Not so. Different people have different skills. Just like you, you can take as an article of faith that everyone on, say, a World Series championship team, Yankees, all the nine players probably was, were the best players on their high school team, maybe even their college, and probably could have played every position better than any other person. You could pitch, you could hit. But when you get higher and higher up into the rarefied world of either the U.S. Attorney's Office or Major League Baseball or where you are, then you realize you can't. You know, you could take the same Yankees team, and I'm sure this is true of any kitchen, and you just make everyone take a different position. You take your ace and you put them behind the plate. You take your, um, your outfielders, put them in you go from being the best team in baseball to being the worst team in baseball, same team. When you were first a manager, when you got, well, your first manager position as a U.S. attorney, were you successful at judging the strengths and weaknesses of your staff and putting them in positions to be successful? Or were you, that? did that take time? That's a great question. And I think it's the most important part of being a leader of any sort, because you can't do everything, is to figure out who the best people are and where they belong, you know, put them in the right position. You know, you have these great nine, you know, these nine great baseball players, who's going to pitch, who's going to hit. You don't have the benefit outside of sports of, you know, a scouting team and a long record of people self sort of selecting to go into a certain position. They naturally become the pitcher because, because they pitch really well and they exceeded everyone else in that category of, of work or sport. I'd like to think a little bit, I had some innate ability to figure out talent, but I consulted a lot with a lot of people, every time we made a personnel decision or every time we made a decision about who to put on which case and how to balance out teams, you know, sometimes you have to balance out teams. So I'm sure this is true in kitchens, just like it is some, you know, elsewhere. You can't put your three most aggressive prosecutors on you know, a case or an investigation and think that that's necessarily going to go well. You want to have a balance. You want to have some aggressive people. You want to have some maybe more cautious people. 
And the combination of those different attitudes and approaches is more likely to keep you out of trouble and more likely to get you to, to the right decision. The other thing to remember, and it took me a while to figure this out, is sometimes you go through the analysis and you think, we're going to promote, I'm going to keep using you, we're going to promote Dave Chang. He's done really good at this job at this level, and he's great, and everyone loves him. Now we're going to give him this different job, and it's a different set of skills, who is now going to oversee not just you know his own cases, but is going to oversee 12 people. And based on the available evidence when you make the decision, you would make that decision again and, and again and again. But it turns out to be a disaster, because there was something about Dave Chang that you didn't realize he couldn't handle either the responsibility, or he got too big for his britches, or he became you know, paralyzed because now it was, it was his responsibility to do. I mean, we've had situations where the number two person in a subdivision is amazing. You put that number two person in the number one slot and it can be a disaster because it's a different kind of job. And similarly, you could have a number two person who, you know, you don't think is great. Maybe they're just not as good in the number two spot. And then by happenstance, you have no choice but to put them in the number one because that person leaves. And then they crush it. You know, they hit it out of the park. So to some degree, you have to be thinking about it all the time. I'm not aware of any manager, supervisor, leader of any sort who doesn't have, you know, a track record of significant personnel mistakes because you can't you can't always know. True. That was so fascinating. <laughs> Cause if you just took out attorneys, that is just me deciding who should be the sous chef, who should be the chef. Right. So how do you how do you do that? How do you know? And it's over the years, and if you I mean, I talk about this all the time with my own team. And how stupid the culinary industry is, because for forever, to be considered a sous chef or a chef to be promoted as a culinary management, you got promoted because you were a great cook. Yeah. You were so good at cooking. Right. Like, I don't know why logic would dictate that you should be a good manager, too. A hundred percent. I didn't make that part of the argument. So consider law firms and prosecutor's offices suffer from this probably in the same way, and maybe you know, I always thought more. I always thought that that law offices were were managed very poorly because there are no business people typically. And in a prosecutor's office too, what is the thing that you show yourself to be that gets you promoted? I tried. I tried the shit out of that case. I'm the greatest courtroom lawyer. I crushed everyone on cross examination. I made an impassioned argument to the jury. You know, every case I bring, I get a conviction, which is great. Now, I should become the chief of the unit or the squad. Now, sometimes the skills that cause you to be an amazing trial lawyer are completely not the skills that are good for being a supervisor, like patience, like empathy, like being open-minded to other sides. Sometimes, you know, when you're trying a case, sometimes you got to be a little tough and a little bit aggressive, you know, maybe overly so. Uh, some people have both qualities. Some people are amazing, I presume, sort of lower on, you know, lower in, in the totem pole and then great later. But they're completely different skills. And the reward structure, I tried to change this in the office. You know, just because you were great at writing a brief, you're the best writer, doesn't mean you should be leading the other writers. But if we go into that point, the person that's the great writer of a brief, do they think that they should be a supervisor? They should get a promotion because yes. they're so good at it. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Well, look, here's the kind of person I really respect because I think there's an issue of self-awareness. So there are some people who are good at everything, and I love them. And those, I mean, I'm sure in your organization, man, I had a handful of those people. I could have put them anywhere. I, could, I mean, literally anywhere. You know, trying cases, investigating cases, public corruption, securities, terrorism. They just are people who just are, and, but they're not that many of those people. You know, a handful in any institution, if you're lucky. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Self-awareness. Yeah. 
Then there are some people who don't aspire to the big thing, to the supervisory position. Because you know what? What I'm good at is I'm good at trying cases. I'm good at being in court. And by the way, if people may not know this, when you go up in the totem pole at the U.S. Attorney's Office, then you stop. I mean, I never tried a case. No U.S. attorney has actually personally tried a case in the Southern District since Rudy Giuliani decades ago because you're busy managing the place. And I had a general rule that if I made you the chief of terrorism or the chief of anti-corruption, then you can't indulge yourself in the fun of doing a trial because that's, that's an indulgence for you. You need to manage everyone else. And there were some people who were self-aware enough to realize, I don't want to manage people. I don't want to deal with their issues and deal with the personality disputes. And you know this. There's a lot of shit when you manage people because people are difficult and some people don't get along. And I would say to people when they want to be promoted, are you, first, are you sure you want that? Because some people are so ambitious, they think that there's a natural progression to their career that must include certain kinds of promotions. Like, there's no, there's no harm. If you're a great reporter, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, I know some people like this, just a, a third field outside of yours and mine, who they know, they like to write. They like to go and investigate something and write. And they don't want to become an editor, which is, I guess, in some ways, a rung up, because then they're not doing the fun stuff anymore. And they also think, well, I might not be good at that. I might not be patient with someone. So what I know I can do is I can write. What I know I can do is I can cook. What I know I can do is try a case. And I wish more people thought about their sort of own fun and, and ability rather than always being on this rat race to have another item to put on their resume. Again, I feel like you just described <laughs> a certain sector of the culinary universe for sure. Um, yeah, it's the exact same. And even to the point when as an executive chef, like I don't cook, I don't, do any of the knife work. I don't break yeah. down fish anymore. I don't... Yeah, your friends probably don't know what you do. Like My daughter once came down... So my daughter was... Uh, when she was maybe 11, she came down to my little office in my home. She's like, Daddy, I can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. She's like, what do you do? I said, what do you mean? She's like, you know, I have friends whose parents, they see you on TV sometimes and they say... The, and so, so what do you do? I said, you know what I do. I'm, I'm the U.S. attorney. You know what the office is about. She's like, well, let me ask you this. When someone has done something bad and committed a crime... Do you go to their house with handcuffs and around? Do you do that? I'm like, no. It's like, okay, well, who does it? I explain, you know, the FBI or the DEA or whatever. It, well, so when they get charged with a crime and it comes time to try to convict them in court and make the argument, so do, do you go, do you do that? I said, no. She's like, well, then I, I repeat my question. What do you do? I'm like, I, she I sounds like she'd be a good lawyer. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I said, I said, I go to, a, I have a lot of meetings. I have meetings, honey. She like turned around and walked out. <laughs> she was so deeply disappointed, right? But that's leaders. I mean, presidents of the United States, what do they do? They oversee. Do you and, they, and they're the outward face. They're the outward face of the institution. And their job, you know, Pat Fitzgerald, who's a great U.S. attorney from Chicago, said what I think a lot of leaders would say, assuming you have the right team, is that when you have the right people who know what they're doing, the job of the leader is to get out of the way and let them do it. And when they're not doing it, then you sort of steer them. Easier said than done. Of course. You know, one of the problems that I always sort of have to deal with whenever I work with, and I love working with young cooks that become young chefs, or not young is the just a, a term, but not age, but I always see this. Because obviously I want to promote someone because they're talented. But I tell them, your job isn't about cooking anymore. You've reached a peak of cooking. I don't right. care about that anymore. And you should stop caring about that. Right. Because inevitably, I've learned what they're going to do 
and it's natural. It's like whenever you write an autobiography or your first book is always like a reflection of your your life, right? It's just natural that I see this and it's never failed to see it. Every young chef makes a recipe that's so complicated and so <laughs> about right. them. Right. That no one else can make it. Right. <laughs> or that's not good for the organization. Not good for the organization. Or right. they run it in a way that is so uh effective only for them, where they it's almost like a catch-22 where they create a problem so they can fix it. No one else can. Right. And I'm just, it drives me crazy. Is that intentional or they're just doing that and it causes the problem you're describing? That's what I wonder. Right? Yeah. And I have to shake them out of it. I'm like, stop. Like, for instance, if we have a critic come in and I've seen this again, time and time again, the person that's probably the worst cook to make the food is actually the chef. Because right. they don't make it every day. Right, right. And now all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm going to do it. Everyone step out of the way. Right. Pay attention to me. <laughs> do what I was like. You're going to ruin the flow of the kitchen through entirely one's own ego. And it doesn't even have to be a critic. It's like when you see a problem, fuck it, I'll, right. I'll just do it myself. Right. And it's just this no, mess. It's, it's this, uh, I, the same thing happens in other places too. Someone said, you know, I hadn't tried a case in years at the time, and I thought I was pretty good at it, but you get rusty. If someone said, Pre, you go try this case. Like, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I think I'm very good at leading. I think I'm very good at figuring out who should be on it. I'm very good at, I thought, you know, in consultation with my deputies, figuring out how we should handle something thorny that the judge was throwing at us or the defense was throwing at us. But, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to get a piece of evidence in or, you know, how to create your slides for the summation, which I used to, you know, you spend all-nighters on at trial, that's basic fundamental stuff that I have lost the ability to learn how to do. Just like the chef you're talking about, you know, losing the other basic abilities. And it, I was describing myself it's, effectively. It's, <laughs> <laughs> but again, some of these, it's, it's, you said ego, I said indulgence. It's a bit of an indulgence. And people want to let it go. When they, you get higher up, they think two things. They think, well, I can do it better. And they also think, I want other people to know that I add value. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Finding a new job is a lot of work. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now, ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. Just download the ZipRecruiter job search app, let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in, and its technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you'll like and puts your profile in front of employers who may be looking for someone like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know. So if you're interested in the job, you can apply. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. And based on third-party survey, seven out of 10 people who found a new job on ZipRecruiter increased their salaries. These were the results of a 2017 U.S. survey of over 500 ZipRecruiter users who got hired for a job they found on ZipRecruiter. My listeners should download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, 
then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. And I can't tell you how much I love Sonos because we're in a new apartment right now and I know I've said it in the past, but like not having it for the first month really sucked because I like to change from listening to music from my phone that I can play on Sonos to watching some action movie. And it's great to sort of like change how I listen to something. And the whole adding speakers thing is a real thing right now. I don't know where I'm going to add another speaker, but I'm thinking it's going to be to the left of my couch and it's going to be really easy to add that. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. It's just the best way to enjoy your sort of home listening experience. And now back to the show. When you have all these sort of type A, top of the class lawyers that are all like now part of the Southern District, they've gotten there because they're better than everyone else. How hard is it for them to learn that they're not as good at everything, right? That 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 moment of humility and awareness. Yeah, how really did you hard. learn that? Real. So I I have what I used to think was a crazy balance or imbalance, but I've come to decide if it's not correct that the way I get through life is by thinking it's a good balance. And that is, um, and I've said this a bunch of times and in the book as well, where I say, you know, I became the leader of the office, a destroyed institution, you know, lots of legendary figures in American history, legal history, and not just legal history, American history have come out of that office and have led that office. And I'm like, I'm a 40 year old punk kid born in Punjab, India, grew up in Jersey named Preet Bharara. What the hell am I doing here? So you have to have a little bit of that. And there's lots of things that I didn't know. You show up at an institution and there's all sorts of people who are experts at material witness warrants and FISA, and I'm using technical terms, that I had some experience in. Some things I knew very, very well. I had done racketeering cases and mob cases, but other things, securities fraud, I had never done an insider trading case. And now I'm asked to make the decisions about them. And people's presumptions are that, well, you're the head of the office, you must be the best guy. But no one at the head of the organization can know, can know everything. So at the, on the one hand, I had a lot of self-doubt, roaring self-doubt, as I referred as I referred to it, and I describe that a little bit because I think it's important for leaders to describe that, so that people who are reading and trying to become leaders have some faith that they can grow into it. But then I make it a point to say, which is not to say that I'm I'm a nervous wreck all the time. I have a lot of confidence too. There are times probably I have overconfidence. So I think that if you are you come into a new situation, and even if you've been in a situation for a while, you have to be at certain times worried about your abilities. And lacking in self-confidence and other times be very confident once you've made your decision. And even if you're lurching back and forth between those two, that makes a person who's on the one hand likely to be aggressive and do new things and not be afraid because you have that self-confidence, but also on the other hand, not run into the breach and do stupid and bad things that might set the organization back because you have some doubts and it causes you, self-doubt causes you to consult other people. I mean, one of the ways, just go back to your question, how you deal with the issue of of not being sure of yourself is you consult other people. The single greatest reason for success of anyone, and myself included at the office, was I never did anything significant, made any significant decision, including the decision not to agree to resign when President Trump asked me to, when, when I was asked to resign by the Justice Department, or not to return a phone call that the president made to me on March 9th, which I think may have led to my being fired, without talking to two or three other really, really smart people. And if I'm lucky, people who are smarter than me. 
And even if my instinct is right, I used to say, you know, if my instinct is right, you know, 80, let's say I have an 85% track record and Dave, you must be like at 90%. But I'm, I'm guessing that overall your track record is like a 98%. And that difference between 85 and 95 or, or, or 90 and 98, at least in my case, was because there were every once in a while, I had a really, really, really stupid, shitty idea or a medium shitty idea. And these other people said, you know, maybe you shouldn't do it that way. So you have to have the self-confidence to go forward if you consult it and you think your, your way is right anyway and overrule other people, but at the same time consult with other people because maybe you're wrong and listen to those folks. And I found that, and do you think that maybe the hardest part is when someone's very talented at their job and the more successful they become, they think it should be easier. You're basically telling someone, no, you need to make it more difficult. You can never be so sure that you can't change your opinion on something. Yeah. And I find that talent, at least in cooking, is often the greatest hindrance and obstacle to becoming a great chef. Is that because um, there's one phenomenon that sounds like what you're talking about? Is that people think they're so talented, they don't have to work hard. I mean, I used to think, I, think, I used to think I was a pretty smart kid when I was in law school and after law school. And only when I started working really, really hard at it, combined with any, you know, any talent you have, did I actually become successful. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but it, it is. And I think it's, it's such a, a dense topic that I don't think it can be unpacked in, in this podcast, but I continue to find that it's like a catch 22. It's, you need some modicum of talent to get to a certain point, but it's like, whether talent or obstacles come your way, it no longer works for you anymore. Yeah. And it's not hubris. It's just sort of laziness or people don't want to grow anymore. And I find that to be the hardest thing to tell someone, at least in my company, like you got to grow up. Well, because you become, com I mean, maybe what you're saying is, and I see this also, you get comfortable with a certain level of success. You're like, it's going pretty well. I'm at this level and I'm doing well. Why would I put myself out there and risk failure once I've been successful by trying to grow, by doing something that's a little bit different, a little bit harder? Look, one of the reasons I think we became friends quickly is you had this life, this thing you're doing. I had, you know, the thing I was doing. And then look, you have, you have two Asian guys in America, New York City, doing podcasts. What business do you and I? <laughs> I mean, and yours is great. Uh, and I think people listen to mine. But what, A lot of people but, listen to yours. But you know what? The first, so, you know, just to go back to what you were saying before about confidence and otherwise, new things should be a little bit scary. You know, you would think that a guy who was the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, who was banned from Russia by Vladimir Putin, who had, um, you know, basically fights with the Indian government, the Turkish government, who oversaw prosecutions of mobsters, you, you name it, all the bad guys you can think of, that then, you know, decided not to call the president of the United States back. You know, I have, I have some backbone uh, and some confidence. And then I'm like, I'm going to do this podcast called Stay Tuned with Preet. Think how, you know how nervous I was? And, I, and I've interviewed uh, and cross-examined people at trial and interviewed uh, you know, lots and lots of people where the stakes were much higher, where if you do it wrong, maybe you don't hold somebody accountable. If you do it wrong, maybe the wrong person gets hurt. And here I am on the eve of doing my first podcast, where the, who gives a shit how it goes? It goes bad. It's just my bruised ego. And I was you know, shaking like a leaf that morning because it was a new thing. But I think it was, it's important to do these new things, uh, which is why I respect you. Um, so again, if you haven't read the book or if you need to read the book, I think there's a lot to glean, not just on the culinary world, but culture and leadership. And one last thing about this one I wanted to ask you is, 
Yeah, throughout the book, you have all these moments of decisions under duress. <laughs> yeah. Right? It really seems to me like, oh, wait, this this guy, we just nabbed him at the airport. He committed you know, like the 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 Times Square terrorist. Yeah. yeah. You have to make decision in, in fractions of seconds, it seems. And that's to me the true test of of leadership and the culture is are you gonna be calm and even though you don't know what the answer might be, you're going to at least make a decision based on the foundation and the principles that you've created. And I find that it's harder and harder to get people to realize that because they think they have to move fast and have a fast decision. Instead, they got to slow down a little yeah. bit, which is an oxymoron. So I talk a lot about investigations. When something bad happens, you know, a bomb goes off, people want speed. They want to know who the bad guys are. And they should because if they're still on the loose, um, more people can die, right? That's to use a you know a more extreme example. But at the same time, if you're talking about justice, you got to be careful. You know, a bomb went off once in the Olympic Village in in Atlanta. I think it was Atlanta, right? Um, many years ago, and they got the wrong person. So, you know, speed is your friend because you know evidence disappears uh, and witnesses flee, but speed can also be your enemy. And it's like anything else that's a paradox, right? As you say, um, it requires balance. Sometimes you need one. Sometimes you need another. Uh, and there are sometimes, as you mentioned, as I described in the book, that you don't have the choice. You know, in other investigations, you you have the luxury of saying, "Well, I don't know if Dave Chang did." I keep making you the criminal in my hypotheticals. <laughs> I hope you, I hope you, I hope you don't mind. Just a, you know, it's a nice uh, short, short, uh, shortcut. Um, and sometimes you can say, "Look, uh, you know, we have eyes on Dave Chang, and he's not going to kill anyone else." Um, and so let's sift through the evidence some more. Let's do some more fingerprint analysis, whatever it is you need to do. But then sometimes you can't do that. You have eyes on Dave Chang and he decides to go on vacation. That happened with, you know, with a fraudster that I described in an early chapter of the book, who we had reason to believe had defrauded a bank out of, you know, almost $200 million. He was getting on a plane to Italy, did not have enough uh, evidence to, to bring the case then, but we're concerned. Maybe does he know something is up? Is he fleeing and never coming back? And you have to make a split-second decision about how you deal with that. We had another case that's it's an odd thing to talk about, given the culinary theme uh, of your of your show. But, but I do talk about a case where there are people who have a particular fetish, I don't think they come to your restaurants, who are aspiring cannibals. That was a very shock. I did not expect that. It was a that shocking twist. chapter yes. for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, it's true. Uh, there was somebody who we identified because his wife became very, very upset and fled the home found out that her husband was going through all these sort of dark fetish websites where people, I don't know if you could say fantasized about or planned, and this is the distinction, was it a thought crime or was it a conspiracy to do something? But, you know, traded text messages and, and went on websites where they talk about how to, you know, kidnap, rape, kill, and eat other people. And with respect to this person who was a, an on-duty active NYPD cop, who had been engaging in all this online activity, the wife freaked out, took her baby and fled and said, you know, I'm, I'm afraid for my life. I know the side of him. Uh, we monitored him for a while because he had, actually hadn't done these things. We saw the kinds of things he was attempting to do. We saw that he had staked out some particular women, didn't do anything with them, but they were identifiable. So took it a little bit more out of the realm of fantasy. Uh, had actually done website searches for chloroform, which is the thing you would use to knock someone out, to kidnap them. And at some point we wanted to develop more evidence but as we've been talking about, the theme of this, this question is sometimes you, you don't have the luxury of time. He decided that he was going to take a vacation and he was distraught. And when once someone decides who you know to take a vacation, it's an on-duty 
active cop who um, active cop who has a, a weapon, a firearm, and is capable of these things that we've been reading about. You were either going to flee and you can't keep surveillance on them. We took him in. We arrested him. And then we went to trial on less evidence that we might have otherwise had because we didn't get to develop more stuff. And it was a very interesting issue of whether or not it was a thought crime, even though they're really, really devious uh, and deviant thoughts, or did he actually take a substantial step towards committing the crime? We made the decision we made. We convicted him at trial. The judge disagreed and released him, uh, overturned the conviction. He's a free man today. And I do the analysis looking backwards. I said, you know, given the same circumstances and the same facts, I would authorize the same thing today. I wanted to ask you that. Because I again, I really have so many questions about this book. <laughs> if you were the judge, would you have done what the judge, right? With knowing the information that was at hand, I wouldn't have. But the weird thing is, and I, I, I wondered what my prosecutors would think about this answer. In retrospect, I look at what the judge did. I would not have done. It. I disagree with it. But there's also people always talk about you agree with someone or disagree with someone. There's a second question I like to ask: With what intensity do you agree or disagree? And I think it was like it was a closer question than I think I appreciated at the time. Because there were a lot of elements of it that sounded like they were fantasy. You know, he and these other people would make plans to go meet somewhere and bring, you know, crazy devices to engage in this kidnapping. And, and the language they're using is really, really, really horrific. I mean, don't read this stuff, folks, or listen to the audiobook when you're eating. Uh, and so he had some basis. Would I have made that decision? No. Would I have made the decision that I made again to arrest? Yes. Um, but I, I get the point. And that's a little bit of sort of a theme of the book. You, you need to understand what the other arguments are. And reasonable people can think it was one way or the other. The, the epilogue to the story, for those of you who, who may not read the book, is with respect to that guy, he was in contact, he was in contact with other folks um, who we continued to investigate and who were not hinked up. And three other people, sort of a direct line from this cop to these, to these other people, those people we were able to put in an undercover cop, you know, to to get evidence uh, from, uh, and saw them take much more substantial steps. Some of them pled guilt, were charged, pled guilty. One of them went to trial in front of the same judge and made the same argument that it was fantasy. No, this case is different. With respect to this, you took more steps, and I can be more sure that the fantasy hadn't graduated into reality, uh, which just shows you these things are difficult. They're difficult for prosecutors. They're difficult for judges. They're difficult for all sorts of people. One more thing, a couple more things, is... Um it seems like you sort of delve into moral ambiguity quite a bit as, as an attorney. Yeah. How do you know your moral compass is right? How do you know that your ethics are strong enough to make the right decision? Because I, I say this as a joke daily that every day in a restaurant, it's like diffusing a bomb. And it's this it happens every day, like Groundhog Day. And sometimes the bombs are like, you can predict how, what wires they cut. And sometimes you don't know. You almost have to judge which right. is the thing you have to do. And, and people freak out because every day it's sort of the same, but it's not. And I almost always internalize that as like a moral gray area a lot of times about how to make a right decision. And I feel like chefs were so underprepared to make decisions in the gray area sometimes. Yeah. So it's a great question. And it should be clear. I'm sure this is true of, of restaurants too. Lots of things are clear. Like a lot of it's clear. A lot of the job that I had and the things you do every day, the rules you follow, uh, the T's you cross, the I's you dot, how you go about getting a wiretap are, are understood and known. And there's really no reasonable person should be able to differ with you on it. 
those don't make the most interesting stories. Um, but there's a base level of stuff that just, this is how you do it. You know, you pay your taxes, all those other things. Um, but then there are things that are difficult, you know, where you're diffusing the bomb. And you can't always know. But part of the point of the book was to make clear that what's more important than book learning and credentials uh, and, you know, academic standing is judgment. And you and I both know many, many really, really, really smart people, you know, high IQ people who you wouldn't put in charge of anything, who are not capable of thinking in the moment and applying judgment and making rational decisions. Or even if they can do it, there's a lot of drama associated with it or they go to pieces over it. Um, they're much more comfortable sitting in a library, you know, contemplating something that doesn't have a lot of consequence over the course of seven years, after which they have a thesis um, and a conclusion that they can write out. And those are that's great. You need people like that also. But in the sort of hurly-burly of an everyday thing, whether it's something like a kitchen or a courtroom, you need people who have good judgment in the moment. And you can't always know. I mean, the mantra that I, that I was given in the U.S. Attorney's Office and I tried to then bestow upon the people who I oversaw and I trust and believe is happening now, and it sounds very simplistic, but, but the mission is to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons every day, and that's all. Now, the hard part is what, what, is, what is the right thing? I saw recently... Um, I'm going, to get, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but I meant to write it down because it stuck with me. I don't remember it from the book. I saw To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, the Aaron Sorkin version of the, of the book. And at the end, there's a lot of moral ambiguity in things that happen in the unfolding of that play, you know, the classic American book. <clears throat> but at the end, um, you know, one of the characters engages in, I think it's Scout, engages in a soliloquy a little bit and says, you know, what is the right thing? Well, trying to do the right thing is the right thing. And isn't that what decency is all about? So you can't always be sure that you did the right thing. You can't always be sure that the decision is correct. But if you're always focused on you know, that as a North Star of wanting to do the right thing and, and acting in good faith, I mean, lots of people in the Justice Department elsewhere make mistakes all the time. Uh, but it matters that you're trying really hard. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't fix it. I mean, I also tell stories in the book about miscarriages of justice when everyone was sort of doing a reasonably competent job that, um, and they weren't biased in, in the way that you think about it. They weren't racist uh, and they weren't grossly incompetent, but they deviated from perfection, all of them, a little bit. And Is it the Oklahoma City bombing? Uh, it was the bombing. The, it was the, the Madrid, bomb. the no, Madrid bombing, the Madrid bombing where you know, an innocent person based on a bad fingerprint match, you know, an innocent white lawyer from Portland, Oregon, was basically believed to be involved in a jihadist terrorist attack in 2004 in Madrid, Spain, where 191 people were killed. And th that I tell because it's a huge cautionary tale for everyone in any kind of business or, or life work, where nobody in that case, the fingerprint examiners or the prosecutors or anyone else, I think was a bad person, um, or I think tried to do the wrong thing. They're all acting in good faith. But, you know, boy, they didn't take care to reevaluate. They didn't adhere to the strictest, strictest standards. And when a lot of people do that, and when accountability is you know, spread thin like morning frost, I think I say, then you can get miscarriages of justice there too. You should read that. You should read the book in general, but that was something I, I was playing over in my head over and over again. Like I think anyone would have made those mistakes, right? Yeah. But the thing is, if you keep in your mind examples of those mistakes, then hopefully when you're confronted with it, you think to yourself, well, I remember that story. Mm. Gosh then I need to maybe have a different approach to it. 
I think one of the most powerful things I took from this book was, and you say it in a variety of different ways, whether you have detectives or the the SS uh, interrogator Sharf, you know, one of the things that we've or going through, at least in the culinary world, is just how you treat other people. And I've been guilty of saying, like, just yelling and acting like an imbecile. Okay, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't but, do like, that. I've, I'm really trying. I'm learning. I know a lot of other people are. But part of this is, like, trying to know that there's other way, even though that might be more difficult. But, like, you have ample evidence that, like, speaking softly, yeah. treating someone with empathy, like, you would want to be treated, yeah. feeding them. And food has become something that is like a great tool in interrogation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, you know, obviously we should talk about that. Look, there is this misbelief in, in a lot of places, but in, in particular in law enforcement, that the way you deal with people and the way you get confessions from them and the way you interrogate them and bring them to your side is through fear, intimidation, up to and including torture, right? You watch a movie, someone wants to know where the other bad guy is, you know, they shoot a toe off or something. And that doesn't work in the real world. And every single example that I know from my own experience, and I've interviewed and gotten uh, information from from really terrible people, mobsters and others, not by browbeating them, not by coddling them, but by, you know, you build rapport with them. You, you, you talk to them in a, in a very straight way. And that's how you get, and that's how you get information from folks. And some people don't like that because they think the other way somehow is tough and effective. And just not, you know, cops have told me, you know, people think, that when I have someone in custody, the thing that causes the person to tell me something is that I have a badge and a gun. He says, no, it's the opposite of that. I spend all my time after the arrest making the guy forget that I have a badge and a gun and wanting to believe that I'm just another person who's there to help to try to get the person to, you know, to confess something to me or tell something to me because it's going to be for his own good. You want, you want, to, you want to respect people's intelligence and decision-making abilities. Another example that I talk about in the book where uh, a detective I work with a lot, Kenny, Kenny Robbins, would go into a room with someone who was trying to get them to flip and testify for the government, you know, facing a long narcotics um, crime sentence, and would put a picture of the, the person's family, you know, wife, child, whatever he could find, on the table quietly and walk out of the room and then come back. And he would say, you know, I, I know that you're a man. You could decide, I want to be a man. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Or you could decide, you know, recasting masculinity for him. Or you could decide... I'm going to be a man and I'm going to be there when my daughter graduates from high school. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to be there when my father retires. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to be there when my son needs me. You know, all sorts of other things to think about. He didn't, he didn't yell. He didn't scream. He didn't try to hit the guy. And that technique worked, worked better than other techniques. Um, and just, I mean, separate apart from criminals, you know, I just think generally uh, it can be tough because things are, you know, pressure cooker and high stakes and leaders are under a lot of stress. It is in the long run not a good strategy to lead through fear and intimidation. You know, Dwight Eisenhower, who I quote, you know, was not considered weak. You know, he was one, one, of, the, one of the greatest generals we ever had. And then a two-term president um, said, you don't, you don't lead people by hitting them over the head. That's assault, not leadership. And it can be tough, but I think it's more effective. And I kept on rereading these, these passages because the culinary world is coming out of some dark ages. Is it? <laughs> yeah, man. Like that leading by acting like an idiot and you just weren't taught to be calm and soft. Right. I never saw that. Right. Well, I worry about the tech, you know, the tech industry has a reputation for that too. That you come in, you're like 23, 
and you're, you know, you dropped out of Harvard and I'm using no particular example in my, in my, in my mind, but you're tough and brash and you yell and you're, and you're a perfectionist that can work for a little while, but it doesn't do any good for the, for the culture of the place. I remember somebody saying once, and I feel this way, that the people that I worked hardest for, uh, were not the people who I was afraid of, but the people who I admired and respected, who had treated me well, who I didn't want to disappoint. And if you can do that, that's harder to build that kind of a, of a bond between yourself and the people working with you. But if you can do that, you know, people, I, I would often say when I went to business schools and talked about leadership a little bit, you know, be the kind of boss that people want to take a bullet for, not the kind of boss that people want to put a bullet, bullet in. Hmm. Um, and it's hard but it's better. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm forcing myself to get better at. It's it's it has not been easy, but the more I talk to people like you and just anyone in this business or any field, it's like, oh, that totally makes sense, but it's still hard to to like do, to not lose your temper, to be calm, to be present, to have the awareness to know that like in a moment in this kind of situation, I might react this way. It's like, yeah. That's a lot to ask for someone that <laughs> Want to just become a cook or chef, right? Like I, when I think about the qualities that I began to admire more, and I wasn't always, you know, I think I'm better now than I was. The qualities I used to admire were, and I still admire them, right? Aggressiveness, passion, um, focus, intensity, all those things, right? And a quality that I didn't admire as much in people, or didn't think about as much in people who I would elevate and who would be my basically my deputies and my chiefs in the office was even temper. Because once you deal with some people, you know, forget about the boss for a moment, but let's talk about the people who report to the boss. You know, once you start dealing with people like that, who have dramatic eruptions all the time and everything is a crisis and they run around like they're a chicken with their head cut off, it's not pleasant <laughs> to oversee people like that. And then you realize, goodness, look at how everyone else is, is responding to that. And you're then now training another generation of people under that person to think, well, the right way to handle a crisis or bad news is to freak out. Um, it's not about being mean or obnoxious to anybody. I'm not saying those people were necessarily, you know, you know, yelled or had temper tantrums, but, you know, they became unhinged. And you know, I had that all the time. I did the best I could never have the, the folks, other than my, my two closest deputies, they would see me freak out. But I made it very clear that it was important for no one else to see me freak out. Mm. Um, because they need to see a, con you know, people need to see their leader. This is slightly different than what you're talking about, but I think also important. People need to see their immediate supervisor and the people above as always in control, always in command, always calm, even more impressively when the shit hits the fan. That's one of the most impressive things I always thought about Obama, who I supported otherwise. But separate from what you think about his policies, I mean, that dude was, it was cool as a cucumber. And people would tell me in meetings with him that, you know, when the sky is falling, when you're making a decision, I mean, imagine having to make the decision to go in and take out Bin Laden. It's a bigger decision than you and I have ever made. And my understanding is it was done with no drama. Think how impressive that is. God damn it. It's, my goal is just like something happens and to be like, okay, this is what, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it seems so impossible to get to that moment. But also, but doesn't, you're probably being a little hard on yourself because I think also you get to a point where if you've done it for a while, I mean, I freaked out less over time because you realize, you know, I've now been through a bunch of stuff and we got through it and ended up being okay. I don't have to freak out this time because this is just like the other time 
and that ended up being fine, right? So that when you have a history of success in dealing with problems that come up that maybe would get you to, you know, fly off the handle before, on future occasions, that should happen less. That's what I, I think <laughs> I, I, I have gotten a lot better, but, you know, truthfully, like I have worked... I've done everything in my power to get better, right? Whether it's seeing a I'm not going to charge you. I'm not going to charge you for this therapy session, Dave. <laughs> that's what, if you, this if is you buy secret, me lunch, that's the Secretly thing. what this podcast is, is cheap, <laughs> cheap therapy. All right, we'll get you out of here. Let's get something. Thank you. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Before we get out of here, I want to not do an Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. I just sort of want to posit something that I've been working through in my head, and it's sort of to all the chefs out there that are running restaurants, and it's something I've continued to see throughout my career. I've been guilty of it as well, but I think it's, I want to say a benchmark, but a situation that is revealing as to your management style and the health of your restaurant and culture it's when a critic or a super soigne guest comes in, like a very, very important VIP. In the past, what I've seen, I've been guilty of this, is the chef who may not know how to do all the pickups anymore on the stations. They may not have actually made a lot of these dishes, right? They, they may have been the originator of the dish. They've created the techniques. But the day-to-day craftsmanship of making these dishes they haven't done in a long time, if ever. And the funny thing is, is when a critic comes in or a very important guest, the hardest thing to do is to not do the job, to not cook everything yourself. And I witnessed this recently in one of our restaurants, and I wanted to talk about this because I think it's a great learning experience. And I could be wrong, but I think that the worst thing a chef can do is decide to make all the dishes themselves and sort of to boot off the line cook or whoever's working grand manger and to make it themselves. And I know I'm not the only person to have seen this. If you worked in a restaurant where, again, a very important guest comes in, you may have experienced this. You may have been the person that's been booted off. And it might be just the chef, one or two people that he trusts completely. And they're the ones that I almost see. This is like the last two minutes in a basketball game, the people that you want on the floor. And I see this almost like James Harden and the Houston Rockets sometimes where it's like it works sometimes, but not under crunch time situations. You want your whole team to be involved when you have to make excellence happen. And too often, I often see, especially in open kitchens, the chef making all the food. And the reality is the worst person that could be making the food is the chef. Not because they're a bad cook. It's simply they don't have the reps doing it anymore. And I think it's very demoralizing to a staff, especially to sort of the the rest of the staff that might not be the chef or the one or two people helping, but to be booted off your station and not to be able to like make the food is not, in my opinion, where we need to be in kitchen culture in my own restaurants. And again, I have done this myself. It's the hardest thing to learn. One of the most difficult things to learn is to not put yourself in the middle of the situation. And they're never going to learn how to take that last shot unless they take that last shot, right? They need to have that confidence. And the best thing I can encourage chefs to do or whoever's running the kitchen is 
set aside time. It's like practicing, you know, the two minute drill. You don't want to do it in the moment, but give the opportunities to some of your younger cooks on the line every day and give them the reps to make a dish and just tell them like, hey, we have a very important guest here. Can they do it under duress? And in a kitchen, and I think sort of life in general, it's very difficult to make the best decision under duress. And as chefs and restaurateurs, we need to be better at developing these, these moments. So when it does happen, we're not nervous and we can be confident and we can trust our mise en place and we can do what we always do. And am I projecting a lot of myself onto this conversation? 100%. But it's something I've learned to get a lot better at. And I highly encourage those that are in this industry to try to let your cooks do their job. And again, this isn't every restaurant, but I've seen it too often, especially in a couple of restaurants that I've recently eaten at. And some that are mine. Let your cooks do the work and give them the reps. Anyway, thank you for listening to this podcast. Give us five stars or however you rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Stay tuned next week for our next episode. Thank you so much, guys. Take it easy.